program. Right now, we're taking a look at something that happened yesterday and the bigger picture of ambulance wait times in BC. You may have heard this story on the news. A woman fell and broke her hip yesterday in Metrotown. There were delays to the SkyTrain system as crews attended to the woman who was injured. And some are raising questions about just how long it took and how many paramedics perhaps were available to respond to this call. So joining us now to talk more about this is Troy Clifford, Ambulance Paramedics Union President, also an active paramedic. Troy, welcome back. Thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks, Jill, for having me on today. Uh, so how did things unfold yesterday? I know you, you can't tell us everything, but how, as far as you know, how did things play out? So my uh, my information primarily has been through what I've seen in the media and the Obviously, the Twitter, and, and I've also heard anecdotally from paramedics and that that uh, express that's pretty consistent. The stuff we've seen and heard about the considerable delays, and unfortunately, a lady laying on the uh, at SkyTrain uh, with a significant injury, waiting a significant time for the ambulance. So, yeah, you're right. I can't talk about the particulars because I don't have them, but uh, we're seeing this more and more, and I just can't imagine uh, how uh, that's impacted the. That, uh, that patient laying there. That's not what we're about. Paramedics are there to treat and respond immediately. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the system is preventing us and our administration is presenting us to doing what paramedics love and dispatchers love and are here for. So it's causing impacts on them. There's no question. And sadly, we're seeing this more and more every day, Jill. We're getting other examples of this and uh, I'm really worried. So according to EHS, they put out a statement about this particular case saying that the call came into dispatch at 3.36 p.m. That was a call for a patient considered or described to be in stable condition at the Metrotown SkyTrain station. Uh, there were a high number of calls at that time, a high number of critical calls. The fire department was dispatched, arrived there within 15 minutes. Paramedics arrived at 4.44, so about an hour and 10 minutes, just under an hour and 10 minutes for paramedics to get there and transport the patient to, to hospital. Uh, is that a, a lengthy time that somebody would wait an hour, almost an hour and 10 minutes for paramedics? Absolutely, that's a long time, regardless of it being a critical intervention. or um, when, when you're talking about a, an elderly patient with a, with a hip fracture, it may not be a lights and siren response, but it sounds like if they sent first responders, that it, it was uh, deemed to be a, an emergency call. But regardless of whether it's an emergency for uh, life-threatening injuries, it's still an emergency. Uh, a patient is laying on the ground in a public place uh, with, a, with a hip fracture, and, and we need to, you know, that, that's... Absolutely not acceptable an hour and 10 minutes to wait in an urban center in a public place for an ambulance. Um, uh, you know, we know that delayed responses can impact uh, outcomes or uh, exasperate injuries. Um, and, you know, elderly patients have more than, I don't know what this particular case is, but uh, they generally have other health conditions. And um, to lay on the ground uh, that long waiting for help uh, is unacceptable. And uh, if this was an isolated situation in a truly busy time, um, my question is how many more ambulances were out of service yesterday that caused that delay? Because that's not normal um, to wait that long in an urban center for an ambulance. Uh, so it's really upsetting to see that and hear that because uh, that reflects on paramedics and uh, the public's confidence in the system. And uh, I would say that that that's not, uh, it might have been high call volumes at that time, but I would question how many ambulances were out of service. So when you said also that you're being prevented, that the system is preventing you, administration is preventing you from being able to do your jobs, what do you mean by that? 
What I mean by that is paramedics are here to treat and transport. That's what we got into this. Dispatchers are asking, and, and the system failures are, are causing uh, an administration of the ambulance service. So those accountable, we've been raising this issue, uh, as you know, um, since last August. Um, I've met with ministry, I've met with senior leadership, and we have not come up with, despite uh, recent interventions by the ministry, we haven't had a chance to actually implement one thing. The union put briefing papers and solutions together. We have not come up with one solution that will help that poor lady laying on the ground. And that's when I say the system and the management of the BC Ambulance Service and PHSA need to be held accountable for for these actions because it is impacting patient care and um, we're hearing every day that uh, this is happening and, and that can't happen in today's society, I believe. So what would make that change? If we're talking about, here we have an afternoon, it's a Tuesday afternoon, and there's, for some reason, there's a high number of critical calls. What could change to shorten that wait time? So uh, things like staffing our ambulances with uh, proactively through administration and filling it, getting paramedics into the business uh, at the front end where we're talking about recruitment. Um, The administration processes are not allowing paramedics to transfer into the high volume areas because of the delays in their HR processes and shared services between BCHS and PHSA. Um, Those are significant reasons why these delays. Uh, We predicted these uh, shortages uh, last August, and we've been advising them of these. And uh, unfortunately, uh, our predictions uh, and advisement have come to fruition. It's not a matter of having enough resources. We have resources. The government put a lot of funding and uh, additional resources in. It's the management and filling of vacant shifts that uh, they failed to do. And it is complicated. There's no question we're seeing uh, incredible stress injuries to paramedics all over the province. Um, And that's impacting our staffing. But We could proactively address these issues by hiring uh, based on the vacancies as opposed to um, and the needs as opposed to just simply waiting till it's empty to fill because we take it takes time to fill those shifts. So that's what I mean by an administrative burden. Right. So are there a a large number? And I would imagine with not only the pandemic, but with the opioid crisis as well, uh, are there a a large number of paramedics who are currently on stress leave or medical leave? And because they're technically on leave, that's not a position that would be filled. Yeah, so we do have short-term vacancies, so that is one that would be short-term. But that's where you can uh, anticipate a historical amount of leaves and predict uh, and and backfill stage. It's not a unique health health uh, disciplines, the health authorities do this. They, they staff based on a historical need of vacancies as opposed to an averaging, if you wish. So if we know we have average, and we know this since February, we've had upwards of anywhere from 15 to 30 ambulances out of service in the Lower Mainland every day. Well, that's uh, a simple math says that that's, uh, you know, if you've got 15, that 30 paramedics additionally should be staffed um, for short notice vacancies. It's really that simple. Is it, is it still the process, though, if uh, when an ambulance takes somebody to an emergency room, do the paramedics have to stay with the patient at the ER and, and stay there for any for whatever the amount of time it is until that patient then gets admitted and moves on? Because we've talked about that in the past, and that seems to be something that ties up a lot of paramedics when they could be out in communities answering calls, but instead they have to stay at hospitals. Yeah, in some hospitals, we're seeing significant hospital delays because of the volumes, right? Um, so that is an impact on uh, resources being able to be cleared for other calls. 
Um, there's some uh, some hospital facilities, for instance, Surrey Memorial is really good at transitioning paramedics in and out as quick as possible. You know, some of the smaller hospitals in the GVRD and around the province, Okanagan Valley, we're seeing significant delays. And that does when you have an ambulance tied up that can't hand off a patient in the eMERGE because of the volume of patients in the eMERGE or their capacity, then that does impact, uh, you know, any ambulance that's not on the street responding to a call can definitely delay it. So that is one significant uh, factor in this in some communities, for sure. All right, Troy, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for once again coming on the program to talk about this. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jill, and uh, trying to have a great afternoon. And thank you on behalf of all the paramedics and dispatchers. Thanks for being with us. Talking a bit now more uh, about the reaction to the discovery of a mass burial site in Kamloops, the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School. And many are saying that this highlights the urgent need for a national response. And for what that might look like, we are joined by Trisha Logan, Head of Research and Engagement at the Indian Residential School History and Dialogue Centre at UBC. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. What do, when we talk about kind of a national effort, national action to to respond to this, to make some kind of permanent positive change, what does that look like? Uh, it looks like um, a partnership, especially between Indigenous communities, Indigenous communities where there are the sites of former residential schools affiliated with those sites and communities that are nearby, but with uh, communities that represent survivors and First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities across Canada, working in partnership with federal government and provincial government, as well as um, institutions that hold records like the churches and provinces and the federal government that hold records from the residential schools that uh, may or may not have already handed over records about the schools. When you talk about records, and certainly that has been one of the discussions that's been had since this discovery, uh, I think it's hard to believe for a lot of people that here we have, there are records in existence, but for whatever reason, uh, some churches won't hand them over even when they're asked for them. The fact that there are records out there and for whatever reason they're being kept secret, why do you think that is happening? That's been happening for a long time, and you know what we have are and what we've had for many decades now are the stories of survivors and the stories of people who attended residential schools who remember uh, daily life at the schools as well as uh, memories of the student deaths or where students may have been buried. And now it's asking for um, churches or government who. Uh, may have handed over records during the time of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, because part of the, the, the operation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to compel or to to compile uh, records from churches and government. But at that time, and even today, there are still a few um, churches and organizations that uh, haven't been able to make those records available or accessible. Uh, there were also many recommendations made in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, many, uh, as that has been pointed out, uh, more so in the last few days that haven't been implemented. Uh, do you think that this will help push or lead to more of the recommendations being implemented? Yes, I think so. That's that's true. There were 94 calls to action that were released uh, this same week in 2015, in June 2015, um, and there has been some action on 
different areas of the calls to action, but there were specific calls to action asking for a registry of student deaths that the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation manages as the memorial registry. And there was also a call to action to ask for a registry of unmarked burial sites and cemeteries. And of course, as you can imagine, with um, approximately you know over 150 schools across Canada, in every province and territory, um, and with the former sites of those schools all being um, managed and owned in different ways, you can imagine that is a considerable effort to uh, lead an investigation into those sites. So there, there does need to be additional support for that investigation and research to happen. And do you think this could lead to that as far as, so when we look back at the Truth and Reconciliation report as well, that report identified the deaths of more than 4,000 children uh, that due to residential schools, children that had been taken and put in residential schools. So, so will it take or, or, or will this discovery of this unmarked burial site, will that be what's needed to actually follow up on that and do more research and do more more? Uh, trying to find out exactly who these children were. That's what's hoped. This, these are the stories that survivors shared with the Truth Reconciliation Commission while the commission was happening and shared before the commission. And these are their memories, their family members, their siblings, their their relatives that didn't make it home from residential school that they've been asking about for for a long time now. And the, the over 4,000 deaths that were recorded with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are the ones that had... Uh, records affiliated with them that could be confirmed. So, of course, there's always been a knowledge and there's always been a conversation about that number being much higher, but just that that we weren't able to record or, or verify how much larger that number really is. Do you get the sense that now, uh, given the discovery again, that there will be more of a focus as well on making sure that these sites are protected, that there will be a thorough investigation and there will be uh, an effort and a national effort again for for schools right across the country to make sure uh, that these sites are now going to be the focus of being protected and so we can figure out exactly what has happened or what the history was on these sites? Yes, that was another call that a lot of Indigenous leaders and Indigenous community members have have called for, called for investigation, but also protection of these sites. Some some of the spaces have been commemorated or have had memorials um, built at the sites, have had ceremony affiliated with them, and some of them are owned or protected in part with local First Nations and Métis and Inuit communities. And others are privately owned, some are owned by the government, um, and some have had development happen on them or are in threat of development development happening nearby or on those same sites. So there is a there is an urgent need for protecting some of these sites in different locations across Canada to assure that um, where there are, are unmarked burials that those those spaces remain respected and uh, taken care of. What do you think we do then if we do find uh, scenarios and examples of, like you said, some of the sites unknowingly uh, might have been developed or will look very different today than they looked many, many years ago, although not that many years ago. Uh, What do we do in a scenario like that where perhaps it has been developed, it hasn't been protected because people didn't know? That's true, and that that has... um that is something that has happened in the past. 
And uh, as far as I know, most of the development, uh, or it had been stopped, or it is in the process of being stopped, uh, if there was a discovery of of unmarked uh, graves or a burial site adjacent to it or or close by, uh, I think it's also a question of how we mark and remember and um, designate the locations for former sites of residential schools because it's the cemeteries and unmarked burial sites are often affiliated where where there used to be a residential school and really of the over 150 schools only about less than 20 of them are still left standing so sometimes those those spaces aren't aren't marked and um, uh, while the community often knows where these sites are and the community has cared for them and has helped has held ceremony at them not everyone has that um, you know, takes the time to speak with the community or, uh, you know, there's not always a, a safe way to access some of those locations or protect some of those locations. Which one of the recommendations as well, or one of the calls is to make sure that every one of these locations is discovered, is found, and is is then, and then with the lead of First Nations, whatever happens next, that that action is taken. Do you think it's possible or, or feasible that we will be able to find them all? Yes, if there's a collaborated effort, if there's a, if there's a larger... Uh, more uh, better resourced um, effort behind it. You can see that the Tekumlups Tishikwetmuk community uh, had done this work in Kamloops for many years and had taken this research upon themselves and had hired uh, researchers who were working with ground penetrating radar to to do that research on behalf of them of that community as well as the over 35, well over 30 different communities that children would have been taken from uh, to, to attend Kamloops Residential School. So on behalf of those communities, they were, they did that work, um, you know, sought grant funding and sought funding on their own to, to conduct that research. But you can imagine it does take a lot of resources and time and um, a really collaborative effort to, to do that work. What role will your group, uh, again, the Indian Residential School History and Dialogue Centre at UBC, what role do you see your group or is your group taking now and what role do you see it taking in the future? Primarily, it's, uh, you know, first and foremost to make sure that there's support, uh, health and cultural support, as well as uh, research and record support for survivors of residential schools, for intergenerational survivors, for community members, and to see what kind of support to speak with. Um, Indigenous leadership and Indigenous communities to see what kind of support they're looking for, to see how we can help facilitate um, those investigations and protection of the sites, and to work also with the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation uh, as they do similar work with their collection of records and the work that they've done with the Memorial Register and with ongoing work to commemorate and care for former sites of residential schools and unmarked burial sites or existing cemeteries. All right. Uh, Tricia Logan, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. I appreciate it. Thanks very much.
Thanks for being with us. We're going to take a little time to talk real estate now. And this is the headline coming out of the Fraser Valley. Near record-breaking new listings in the Fraser Valley, not enough to match insatiable buyer demand. So let's get a better look at what exactly is happening. And Mary Lou Leslie is a realtor, associate broker, and VP of the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Jill. My pleasure. Uh, so what exactly is happening? I mean, that that creates quite an image, the insatiable buyer demand, but a lot of people wanting to snap up real estate in the Fraser Valley. Yeah, we, we it certainly is a, a, a wonderful uh, a situation that we find ourselves in. May was another record month for new listings. Uh, actually, that were the second highest ever. So the good news for buyers is while the demand hasn't changed, uh, the buyers now have a 40% more inventory to look at compared to what we had in February. So, uh, you know, we, we definitely want to offer that is to uh, at hope for people to come on out and still find uh, your, your perfect home here in the Valley. Uh, so where are people going? Because I know in the past when we've talked about this with more people moving into the Fraser Valley, that can only happen uh, whether it's a new build or if people are moving out. So are you seeing people selling and moving to other parts of BC or realizing this is a good time, they're going to get a good price? So selling and, and then figuring out, oh, we'll go somewhere else? You know, that's an interesting question, Jill. From more mature sellers who are capitalizing on their equity, yes, indeed, they are. Oftentimes, they are selling um, here in the Fraser Valley, moving to the island, moving to uh, other parts of B.C., perhaps to be with children. But what we are finding is we're finding people from Canada, the rest of Canada. Our team is dealing with buyers right now from Calgary, Montreal, and the Niagara Peninsula. These are people that recognize there's lots of work here. Of course, they know that the weather is great here on the West Coast, and they know that the Fraser Valley is affordable with great commuting options because these people, they work from home, they telecommute. Uh, they're the younger set that seem to be replacing the more mature owner who's leaving. And so what exactly is the most popular, or do we even know that? Is it single detached? Is it townhomes? So what are you seeing actually uh, in demand? I would say, Jill, all three. We have six communities, uh, be it condo, townhouse, or, or detached homes. And, of course, the closer you are to the uh, Vancouver border on the west side of the Fraser Valley, the further east you go, the more affordable it becomes. So there's a tremendous mix of what uh, buyers can choose from. And, of course, what is supporting them is working from home, the money that they've saved because of the pandemic, and uh, the telecommuting. So I can't really answer you about one certain thing. Uh, they're detached, of course, being more affordable out here is, is snapped up pretty readily. But then we've got renters coming out of rental into condos, condos moving into townhomes. So it's all that whole domino effect. You mentioned that as well, the telecommuting and that because I know in the past we've talked about the costs and you really would have had to factor in either the cost of driving and parking if you were a commuter, say you were commuting anywhere in the Fraser Valley to Vancouver or somewhere else where you had a significant drive, you would have to factor that in or the cost of transit, which while cheaper than that is still or was still a significant cost. So is that really making a difference then for people? Because if you're not putting that in addition to say your mortgage, it's giving you a lot more buying power. 
You're absolutely right. But I think what people are finding now, Jill, is that it's a combination of both. It's a combination of working from home and perhaps commuting uh, to the office. And, of course, the Fraser Valley has great commuting options if you have to go anyplace else in Metro Vancouver. So as we exit, hopefully exit out of the pandemic and get more to a more normal life, this is what people are experiencing. And when you say it's got great commuting options, I would imagine, though, it depends where you are in that if you're in Langley where you have access to SkyTrain or if you're somewhere where you have access to the West Coast Express, those are kind of well-known good commuter options. But as you move further out, it does become more difficult. You're right, it is. And, uh, with you know, we do have more SkyTrain activity going on out to the valley. But um, these people, you know, not everybody has to travel to Vancouver, we are very sustaining in supporting our own domestic uh, uh, people who live and work here. Um, oftentimes, the, the commuting is north-south. It could be over across to the bridge. It could be south, certainly well within our own community here. It isn't all to Vancouver. I noticed the numbers that were put out today as well, saying that in May, so last month, the number of days to the average number to sell a detached home, 14 days, so two weeks, a townhouse was even less at 12 days. How does that compare to previous times when real estate was bustling? That's a good question as well. It's, It's taking a little bit longer, um, but it still indicates very much a seller's market. But what we're finding is that while the market is strong, some of the intensity is out of it. And uh, this is really what we're experiencing. Maybe not quite as many offers coming in, maybe not quite as many showings, but they're still there uh, and, and in record numbers. Uh, it's an interesting word to call it the intensity. I like that because uh, for yeah. some it would be intensity, for others it was uh, anxiety-inducing flurry when you you know you're going up against eight, ten, twelve other offers. Uh, so you're seeing a decline then in those kind of multiple offers, frenzy-type bidding. We are, we are, and um, but they're still there. But they, as I say, some of that that drive is out of it. A lot of the market has been satisfied, and you know, new people are coming into the market all the time. But what we're also experiencing is uh, with with less pressure on the competition. Is people are more writing offers now, doing their due diligence, taking their time, um, and uh, it, it, so it's it, it's it's not normal but it's getting very close to normal, a more of a normal pace. Uh, do you think with the new stress test rules for mortgages now in place, is that going to have an impact? That, that's an excellent question. Of course, that came into place uh, June 1st, which was yesterday. And uh, our economist at BCREA pointed out that the difference in the stress test for, from 4.79 to 5.15 is really quite marginal and only uh, in, really affected about a difference in their purchasing power of about 4.5%. So it really didn't have a huge effect on uh, on buyers' activities. All right. Uh, interesting times, especially looking at real estate in the Fraser Valley. Mary Lou Leslie, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. You're more than welcome, Joe. Pleasure to be on.
Well, remember a few months ago when we heard the news that the Sea to Sky gondola had once again been forced to close due to another act of vandalism. Somebody had again cut the cable. The second time that had happened, the first was back in August of 2019. Well, the work has been done and the popular attraction is set to reopen very soon. And Kirby Brown joins me now, the general manager of the Sea to Sky gondola. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Jill. Uh, So when are you opening and what's it going to look like? We're opening for the public next Friday, June 11th. uh, And hopefully uh, it'll be a beautiful sunny day. Um, You know, a lot of what it looks like will be similar to what it was before to people that uh, had come to visit Sea to Sky Gala previously. I'm just looking at my office window at the crew load testing all the new cabins that are shiny and on the line and ready to go. So um, it's uh, we're very close to being fully prepared. We sure will be by the time we open our gates next week. So uh, we're going to have a couple days of just uh, local folks here in Squamish joining us, sort of try the new menu in the restaurant and get our staff accustomed to seeing people after eight long and short months in some ways. But uh, <laughs> we're all very, very eager to get back to what we do best. So, uh, Will things be different because of the pandemic as well, as far as when it is open to the public in general, as far as people booking, whether it's online or capacity of how many people can be there? Yeah, we, you know, the, the restaurant obviously follows all the COVID restrictions, as does the organization overall. So, you know, indoor seating is limited, group size is limited, all those kinds of good things. The nice part about uh, uh, the way that we operate, though, is uh, with the individual cabins, right? If you are traveling with your bubble, with your family, um, then you get a cabin to yourself. And, and most of the experience is outdoors in the fresh air. So um, we're already, uh, it's a little bit easier for us just operationally to be COVID compliant. So that will continue for the foreseeable future. And, um, you know, apart from that, we use Zero Blast. They were here today. So everything has got this uh, coating that makes sure that it's uh, very resistant to, to viral strains and everything else, plus all the social distancing and other protective measures that we've been working on. We were really good at COVID before uh, the act of sabotage last September. And uh, we've been tuning up and improving those systems ever since. Uh, so talk a bit, if you can, about what it's been like then, the second act of vandalism, sabotage, as you called it. What went into actually fixing everything and making sure everything was back the way it was before? Uh, a, a lot of work. You know, initially, the, obviously, you know, I think every single one of us was in a bit of a state of shock. Not that we hadn't, uh, you know, viscerally sort of prepared for the possibility of a second attack, but um, th- that it actually had been successful and occurred, of course, was initially a shock. And then we just went right back into making sure that we could safely recover and extract all the debris and, and uh, keep our team, you know, going home safe every night. That was our sole mission initially. Um, and we did that again, even though it's incredibly dangerous work. Like, it's just, it's hard to fathom how scary it is to have uh, your team underneath broken stuff using helicopters to extract and remove uh, shattered debris from a mountainside, but they did it. Uh, it's incredible. They're the only team on the, on the planet that I think has got this kind of experience and they're an amazing team, small group of people. And then all the rest of us, you know, we're in support, just making sure that we understood clearly what our mission was to, to get through this and how we're going to do it together. And we were, you know, driven to make our town proud of us. Squamish is an incredible place full of resilient people. So we wanted to keep our heads high and keep moving forward. So, Obviously, we replaced 25 cabins uh, and uh, got a brand new haul rope. There was some damage along the line that was repaired um, and invested heavily using, you know, some of the best security experts on the planet to help us devise an entirely new security architecture to protect us moving forward. So 
that took an enormous amount of effort and, uh, you know, caused us to become in part a security company so that we can, uh, you know, fully embrace, uh, you know, the reality that we'll have to be um, uh, focused on security forever. You know, even if, uh, as I've said before, if they arrest uh, the person or people responsible tomorrow, we're still going to be this uh, incredibly secure organization, you know, focused on making sure that the experience is intact and, and stays that way forever. Uh, that I, ma- I think, oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I would just say that the, the fine balance here, though, of course, is we want all that to sort of fade in, into the background for people. You know, we just want you to come and experience how beautiful Squamish and the Squamish Nation traditional and territories really are. They're spectacular, special, and sacred places. So the security side of things hopefully will be sort of something you might notice or might not, but uh, it's still uh, quite comprehensive. All right. That must have taken an enormous amount of money as well when you talk about replacing uh, 25 cars and doing all of that work. Oh, yeah. It's been in a very expensive couple of years. But, you know, on both occasions, we had uh, had insurance. Um, we are worth an insurer now that's an incredible company to work with. Um, and, and moreover, though, the investment by the owners in this place is, uh, is as much about their belief in the future in the company and the heart and soul that they poured into it over the past seven years as it is, um, you know, uh, anything else that we're locally owned and, and uh, privately owned. And, and that means the, the, the people that own us care about us and um, have really made sure that, you know, the staff stayed on throughout uh, both incidences. Um, and uh, we've got the team in place to carry us forward into the future. Uh, because it's, I, I know there was, I mean, the first time this happened, and again, not to only focus on this, but people will remember mm-hmm. it, at least for the, the, the foreseeable future. The first time people were shocked that something like this would happen. And when it happened again, I think that was even more so, uh, probably to you and to all of the, the staff too. Have you heard anything as far as uh, the investigation or if you think it's the same people or person that was responsible or where are things with that? Well, you know, first of all, I mean, there's no need to apologize for being interested. Obviously, it's uh, it's unique, you know, in our industry across the planet that this would happen in the way that it did, uh, not once but twice. And certainly after the first time, you know, we we believe that it could either be a, uh, an act of vandalism or an act of sabotage. But in either case, you know, we, we, we had to prepare for what we thought might happen again. And, um, you know, and, and when it happened the second time successfully, like I said, it was just it was the dawning of a whole new day. Clearly, it was sabotage. There was no entertaining the idea that it was just a simple band, act of vandalism. And so, you know, the, the infrastructure and architecture that we put in place is, is vastly different. Um, but to your point, you know, um, it, 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 the, the whole idea of capturing these people could be preoccupying. For us here at the Gondola, you know, we've just been thinking about how do we protect ourselves uh, and sort of stay positive and, and move forward into a future you know, and that we can be really optimistic about and trust that the RCMP are, are working really hard to find these people. And, you know, they don't tell us much, but they also can't tell us much. You know, investigative integrity is critical. And uh, they constantly remind me that they're looking for a conviction, not just an arrest. And I, I wholeheartedly support that. Um, these, are, these are dangerous people or a dangerous person. You know, that's maybe their intention is to just uh, put us out of business or break something really big. But in the course of doing that, on both occasions, they put people's lives in, in, in harm's way quite directly. Uh, and I want to make sure that, that, uh, that those people get the help that they need. So, um, you know, we're supporting the RCMP in every single way that we can um, without start trying to step on their toes. But I, I believe they'll get them. I, don't, I just don't think it'll be tomorrow. But when they do, I will crack a cold one and think um, even more positive thoughts about the future.
Yeah. Did they ever reach out to you? Did you ever re- receive any messages or anything? Mm, like the, the, the perpetrators in mm-hmm. terms of a manifesto or something like that? No, not, nothing, nothing to me directly. And of course, I wouldn't know if they did that to the RCMP. But, um, you know, I, I think maybe the message is in the act itself, but I, that's all speculation. And uh, I do do my best to try and um, not speculate, although it uh, can be a preoccupation sometimes, which is totally understandable, I think, for everybody. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is uh, to have this happen twice. But like you said, we'll let the RCMP continue do their work with the investigation and, and hope for an update there at some point. Uh, so June 11th, like you said, so a couple of days for local residents. Is that before June 11th or when can the general public or people, once we kind of get more moving around or people in that health authority, when should they be thinking about if they are thinking about coming? What, what, when should they start be yeah. thinking about that? Well, you know, we're all waiting for uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry to do her good work and, and let us know when people from outside the health region can come. So June 11th is for anybody within the health region. Uh, locals, uh, Squamish Pass holders um, on June 9th and 10th, so a couple of days before the general public opening. And then, then we'll wait and see. You know, I'm, I'm excited to see Phase 2 and 3 and 4 roll out. Um, uh, we're all really actually pretty excited about uh, this winter coming in, being able to hug and have, uh, you know, bands on the deck again. Uh, I will say we've already booked the Hair Farmers, a really popular local act, uh, for four dates throughout the summer. I guess maybe being a bit optimistic, but we'll have them playing up there, whether it's virtually to, to large crowds or, or smaller crowds in person. So um, we're, we're ready to go. We're, we're absolutely raring to go. All right. And what is the cost if people are going online or, or planning this to book it? Yeah, book on book online and you save a few dollars. It's fifty nine dollars at the window, and pass holders uh, passes are on sale right now for one hundred and twenty nine dollars. And what does that actually get you? Mm, well, I, obviously that gets you a pass uh, is for a year, so you get to travel to Gondola as many times as you like. So it's about ten bucks a month for as many trips to the summit, the hiking trails in the summertime. There's an ascent trail called Sea to Summit, which is absolutely spectacular. Definitely one of the best hiking trails in the region. Um, and the Alpine trails in Shannon Basin are absolutely astounding. Lovely restaurant at the top, the views from the decks, the chief overview platform that lets you look straight down at the chief, uh, the Stuamish chief below you. It's really about the views, but it's uh, a lovely experience all in all. All right. I know a lot of people will be looking forward to an outing uh, on its own is an exciting thing these days. So (laughs) as we reopen and this comes back, I know a lot of people will be looking forward to that. Uh, Kirby, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Joel. Thanks so much.